practical ideas for becoming a Great Commission church. We first looked at the very responsible position of the local church as the pillar, a pillar, and support of the truth. Every local church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That truth is gospel truth, all of it centering around the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an awesome position we have as a local church. No other institution has this. We are a gospel light, a gospel school, a gospel ascending agency. Uh, second, we looked, and most important, the church has a place in prayer and advancing the gospel through our missionaries. It's so hard to get people out to pray, but even if you have two or three, do not underestimate the power of two or three people praying consistently. Don't give up on that. Don't just say, well, not enough are coming. If you have two or three coming, go forward. Be prayer warriors for the Lord's work uh, throughout the world. Now, third, we want to look at becoming partners with a missionary or a mission field. Now, I realize every church is different that's, li that's listening to this. And uh, so some of you may have strong partnerships on the field, strong partnerships with missionaries. Um, some of you may not even have missionaries. But this is a, a point in which will involve the whole church. So take your Bibles and look at Acts 13. Acts 13. We see here one of the first churches and its missionary vision and prayer uh, for the Gentile world. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. So here's an assignment. I would like each of you that has come to this uh, seminar to, on your own, this, it's up to you, to write as many observations as you can about this passage. As many observations. Write 10, write 15. What do you learn from this strategic passage of the sending of Barnabas and Paul. Verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch, this is the second major center, Jerusalem first, Antioch becomes the second major center of Christianity, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a longtime friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord, you might have different words there in your translation, and fasting. Now, that fasting tells us this wasn't just a regular service. This was a special seeking of the Lord in fasting and prayer. Well, what were they seeking the Lord about? Well, the answer comes undoubtedly through a prophet. While they were worshiping or serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, probably through a prophet, here's the answer to their prayer and fasting. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Isn't it interesting? He picks the two best. Didn't send out a bunch of young people. He sent out the two best fellows. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Notice, it was the Holy Spirit who sent them. However, the church is involved. God works through means. This is a very important passage here uh, for missions because we see the local church involved in thinking when they come back, when they come back, they report 
how God had opened the door to the Gentiles. So that's the report. So undoubtedly they were thinking of the Gentile world, praying and fasting about, and God says, okay, you're gonna, the Holy Spirit says, you're going to send Paul and Barnabas, your two key leaders. They're going to go. I'm going to send them. They pray and fast for them. Whenever Paul returns or Barnabas returns, they come back to Antioch and they report. They report. Because from that church, they were commended to the Lord, entrusted to the Lord's care. So it was really their home church and they felt a responsibility to come back. So there's this partnership, partnership, and the excitement and joy to hear how God used these two men to open the door of the gospel to the first Gentile churches and the churches of Galatia. And we have the book of Galatians written to these churches because of a problem that emerged rather quickly. Also, you have Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. The beautiful church at Philippi, the uh, partnering. And that's exactly what Paul says. You have been partners with me from the beginning of the gospel. And they were a giving church. We'll talk about them a little bit later. But they were in league with Paul in a way that brought Paul great joy. This was a wonderful church. When you are directly involved in partnering with a missionary or a particular part of the world, you have a totally different relationship with the missionary. Many, many churches, people try to raise money. They come around the churches. They report where they want to go. The church, well, all right, we'll give you 100 a month, 50 a month. And they get enough churches and they go to the mission field. Those churches don't partner with the missionary. They send the check out. Very little is known about them. What you want, ideally, ideally, and I realize every church is different, not making rules here, to, to partner with a missionary or several missionaries to have a real burden for a certain field, it does a great deal for the local church. It gives you a, a mission together, and, and you're praying together, and you feel you're just a part of this work. For many, many years, we had a, a, a very important work uh, in Indonesia. We have now handed it all over to the Indonesians. Uh, we're hardly involved. But for many years, one of our uh, young couples went to Indonesia. They've seen uh, uh, a 10 churches planted. But I, I saw how it united our church and how uh, the people would do anything for that missionary. Many people went to visit and they would come back. It was a time of great, great rejoicing. I would say it did more for our own church in the sense of uniting us. Church, churches need mission. They need a sense of we're doing something in Indonesia. Uh, we're doing something in Cuba. And it's, it's good for the church, but you enter into a partnership relationship, and it's totally different than just sending out checks or hearing once in a while about a missionary. You get every family involved, all the children at the supper table praying. Now, let me give you just a couple ideas I put in a, a missions magazine recently of how to get more involved in a local area or a local church. It's, it's wonderful when a church sort of has a feel that it has a burden for. And uh, uh, again, it gives you mission and it unites the church. Here's just a couple ideas, four ideas. Select a part of the world for which you have a burden. Perhaps you already have a missionary there and concentrate on that. Now you can concentrate on several fields. Concentrate your effort on the country, on the teachers there, picking up on the local teachers. I'm gonna explain that. Second, send printed and audio resources to your missionary workers. 
Very few people are doing this. Do you know your missionaries need to be challenged? Uh, they, they can't get books very easily. Sending them an important new book that has come out, it's a real help to them. Sending them websites to go to. There's excellent websites to go today for Bible teaching, challenge. I was just telling people just right now, some websites that uh, every worker needs to be looking at, keeping us up to date with the changing times we live in. You can't keep up with it all, but there's people that do that for us. We like to send challenging books to the field, uh, audio messages, uh, suggestions to uh, encourage our missionaries to challenge them to be reading, thinking, uh, knowing some of the newest networks in, on, the, on the web that they should be, be checking. Then third, send spirit-gifted Bible teachers uh, to the field. Let me give an example. Both, uh, this is, I'm personally involved with knowing about this, but in Korea and Cuba, there are churches that for over 20 years have been sending in teachers to teach for a week to two weeks. So, let me not mention more country names because it would get people in trouble. But so let's say there's brothers in Germany, this is true, they come to this country every year, this certain country, give two weeks of intensified training for the workers, for the elders, for all those who want intensified training. This is such a blessing. So uh, Korea, South Korea is an open field, so I can mention that. But I've been to South Korea a number of times, and it's been such a blessing when brothers come from Australia, New Zealand, spend two weeks in concentrated teaching. Just a blessing. And you have uh, some really good Bible teachers. See, see the fields that would like them to come or your particular field of interest. Go there for a week or two and, and give specialized teaching. Fourth, financial support to potential indigenous teachers. Um, Encourage the indigenous teachers, not just your missionary, but I guarantee you your missionaries working with people. Find out who those people are. So recently we brought one of those uh, uh, teachers from uh, Mexico, who's uh, really giving great leadership to the local church. Mexican brother, lives there on the place, uh, uh, at the, at the, uh, uh, near the church. And we brought them to our church to get to know them better and uh, had a public meeting with them. We had to do it through translation and encourage that indigenous teacher. What can we do for you? How can we help you? What, what materials do you need? Uh, would a, would a, a year of Bible school help you? Uh, anything like that to encourage local indigenous teachers because eventually the missionary will have to leave and the indigenous workers have to carry on. Another thing we've done is very nice. So we're, we're working with some, some um, uh, churches in Japan. We don't have missionaries there. It's not a major emphasis of ours, but we have a prayer ministry with them. So we're praying for them, and they're praying for us. And it's been a wonderful relationship of just prayer. And we always tell them, please give us prayer requests for you. There is actually a missionary, and many of you may even know him, in Japan doing a wonderful job. I won't mention names right now. Uh, he's not one of our missionaries, but he's one of uh, the missionaries I pray for regularly, uh, doing a marvelous job there. And I know of different churches that are going at different times of the year to help. Such a help to the missionaries. So, if you can, focus on a missionary, focus on a field, concentrate on it, think of the many practical things you can do. And we'll talk about some other things to do. All right, fourth, form an evangelism or missions committee. 
This is one of the most important things you can do, and here's why. Someone has to take responsibility. So a missionary uh, calls me and he says, Alex, I've been writing and writing my assembly and I cannot get an answer. They won't even answer my emails. Well, the reason they're not answering is not they're bad people. No one's responsible. That's why. No one's responsible. So when no one's responsible, everyone thinks uh, someone else is doing it. It would be good if you could have a missions committee, uh, even if it's made of two or three people, that meets regularly to strategize, to advertise in the local assembly, to come up with plans, to uh, uh, letter support for the missionaries. Now, there, there's other options if you cannot get a committee. So, for example, if, if you're, you're not a large church and you don't want to multiply committees and you know you're not going to get a response, the elders could be that committee. So, in one of their meetings, they emphasize foreign missions and what we can do to strategize and uh, letters and be responsible. Or you can have your prayer meeting once a month. The prayer meeting is missions committee meeting where you strategize, make sure letters, uh, make sure you know when the missionaries are coming back. Uh, it's, it's taking responsibility. Someone has to take responsibility for your missions program or very little will happen. And correspondence is so important. It's so much easier today with the internet. Years ago, you had to write letters and go get them mailed and everything. Today, you can just sh shoot off a letter very quickly. Now, just on a side here, an aside, help your missionaries communicate. Sad to say, many missionaries are not good communicators. Here's one of the most successful things I've seen. It was done by one of our missionaries, and even our other missionaries haven't gotten it yet. But one of our missionaries working in Asia and working in a place I cannot mention the name, he every week sends a two or three line report. Every week. Sometimes even more, twice a week. We get a, a one, two lines, no more than three lines. And he follows up. So we're watching his work progress and what he's doing and after four or five months, you've got a real clear idea, but it's only a couple lines. That's what modern people do. They, I get a lot of missionary letters. I cannot read them all. It would be nice if I could, but I cannot. So when I see two, three pages, I have to exit it. I'm sorry, really sorry about it, but there's no more of me left. But when I get two, three lines, so we say to our missionaries, your job is to tell us. Hudson Taylor said, information is the key to prayer. We don't want to just pray God bless the missionaries. We want specific prayer requests. So help your missionaries communicate. And this is one of the best methods to communicate. Your email. Or uh, you want to use another mobile device of some kind that you just do one line, two, no more than three lines. Here's a prayer request. Here's what we're doing this week. And it is very effective. And I'll tell you why it's effective. Because we've got people praying. That's when it's effective. People know what's going on. People are getting information. And then the church unites behind that information because everyone's getting that email. If the missionary doesn't communicate, it's hard to pray and you lose interest. Frankly, you lose interest after a while. So it's a good thing to teach your missionaries how are they going to communicate with you that you can use that information. So if you cannot get a committee, then... The elders have 
at least one of their meetings every two months or whenever they want to do it that is missions-oriented. You can even invite other people to that uh, meeting and say, it's our night for missions. We're going to pray. We're going to strategize. We're going to plan. We're going to do important things for our missionaries. This is why it's good to have a missionary statement, uh, your missions policy statement. I brought one with me here. Our mission uh, statement is uh, Matthew uh, 28, but then we explain how we're going to carry out Matthew 28. And then there's a section in here, if uh, a young person wanted to be a missionary, how would they go about? What steps would you take to let us know you want to be a missionary, and what would we do? And it's not just young people. So 10 years ago, a couple in our church who were originally from another country, retired in their 50s. And in their 50s, they went to the mission field. They are now on their second church that they have started. Their health is poor. They've got a, a million problems. They are out on the mission field doing a work for God. In fact, when they first got to the mission field where they are, they were threatened by the local people telling them, we will kill you. If you stay here, we will kill you. We'll blow up your car. That's what they were told. Forty people came to their house to tell them that. So the missionary answered back, well, you'll have to kill us because we're staying here. God sent us here. Within a year, they had 40 people in a church. It's a tremendous story. Well, they're in their early 70s, I think now, or late 60s or early 70s. Their health is shot, but they're just pressing forward. So it's not just young people. Maybe you at 55 or 60 want to go to the mission field. Great. Have a mission statement that would tell people, how would you get there? What, what do you have to go through? Just pop up one day, I'm going to the mission field? Five, care for your missionaries when they return. So a missionary says to me, I have many missionary friends, a missionary says to me, Alex, I get home, I give my missionary report, I get my check, and that's it. No one calls me, no one invites me to dinner, they don't ask me anything beyond my report. They don't care. Absolutely right, they don't care. Uh, they're so preoccupied with other things. When your missionary returns, now this is what the missionary committee does, or the missionary people responsible, people know they are responsible for letters, information flow, whatever is needed. You ask the missionary, what do you need? Uh, you need a car? need a place to live, you need to tell us what you need so the missionary feels cared for when the missionary comes home. Sometimes missionaries come home and they're, they're quite tired or uh, they don't feel cared for. It's such a wonderful thing when a missionary feels cared for. And missionaries will tell you that. I really feel cared for by our local church. Or missionaries will say, well, as this missionary said to me, uh, they just don't care. They, they, they're going through the motions. That's what they're doing, going through the motions, but there's nothing beyond that. So ask them, what do you need when you return? Think through carefully, what will we do? We have a nice basket of fruit and uh, food for them. Do we have a, a, a car for them? What is it they need? And let's, uh, let's get people to meet them and be with them. What about new people who have come to your church after the missionary maybe has been on the field five or ten years? How do new people get to meet your missionary or get to know what you're doing in missions? Well, you get the missionary together with them and have a dinner together and uh, have them to their home. You've got to think these things through. That's why it comes back to a committee or a, a, a just a small group of people or the elders or the prayer group 
to plan and think and try to do a good job in caring for your missionaries and not just have them give a report and it's all done. We try to have every missionary to our home right away when they get back, spend some time with them personally. Uh, although I don't have to do that, we want to do that. And we want new people to get to know who they are. All right, six. Have strategy meetings with your missionaries when they return. Very close uh, and similar point. Missionary returns. Uh, they give their report to the church. And uh, then maybe they go off someplace else. We'd like them to stay at the local assembly where we're supporting them very heavily. Then they can go visit others. But we want them here first. One of the most important things we do with our missionaries is bring them into the elders' meeting. And in the elders' meeting, we have a serious, serious talk. And that talk is about their marriage. It's about their children. Uh, it's about where they're going. It's about whether there's burnout. Uh, whether they're discouraged or victorious, what the problems are. And this is usually several hours. We ask all the questions we want to ask. So we feel we know what's going on. We're the supporting church. We have the commendation. We're partners. We're partners. And they feel we're partners. Now, part of this strategizing together is to talk about what are you doing in the next five years, next three years? What, what are your goals as a missionary? It's very easy to get out on the mission field and, and uh, get lost and become a professional missionary and uh, really nothing's happening. As a result of these kinds of very serious uh, meetings with the missionaries, over the years we've removed two missionaries from the field that we felt they, they, their work was over. If the work is over, you come off the field. Uh, but you know they get trapped on the field. I feel sorry. I mean, what are they going to do? Come home and pump gas? And what are they going to do? Their money comes in. They get to send a letter out. Uh, so we help them. We help them make the transition that their work is over and that they need to come back and uh, get a restart on life, and we will help them. So twice we've had to say to a missionary, you know, we do not want to continue this support and this uh, commendation to you. We do not see this going anywhere and just tell them, frankly, you're trapped, and we understand this. We all get trapped in life in a job or something that we'd rather change. Also, this provides real accountability. Missionaries need accountability. And if they're just floating out there and no one calls them to account, it's not good for them. We all need accountability in life, right? Our spouse gives us accountability. Our fellow believers give us accountability. Sometimes our children give us accountability. Someone calls us to account. And, and that's what you do when you have this meeting with the elders or the very interested people with the missionary. And uh, this gets down to mapping out what the future is going to look like. Where are you going? I mean, uh, what, are, what are your next steps? We all need this in life anyway. Seventh, visit your missionaries on some kind of regular basis. I can tell you there's nothing that encourages a missionary more than a visit from home. Again, it shows you care. You also, as a church, need to do this. If you're in partnership, a real partnership with the missionary or the field, and the church is really interested partnering, you've got to get information. You've got to get information. And there's nothing like being on the field for a week with the person or two weeks with the person and here are several things I would suggest. One is have a series of questions that you, the church wants answered. 
series of questions. I would highly suggest your spouse comes, uh, go as a husband and wife, if, if at all possible. Just recently, in the last number of weeks, from the, the church I'm in now, um, I'm helping with a new startup for a year. Uh, one of our missionary couples, very, very discouraged, very discouraged, and, and there's some real good reasons why they're discouraged. Some very terrible things have happened. Well, this couple, on their own, making it a vacation, went to visit them and had numerous meetings with them. It was so encouraging. It was like air breathed into the, the oxygen of their souls, having this couple go to dinner with them numerous times, uh, actually do some fun things together, and hear what was going on, bringing back the report to us. It was just so, so um, valuable. So what you do is something like this. Put it in your church budget, plan it, maybe every two years or whatever it is, on the field, you're really concentrated. You your church may not be able to visit all the missionaries, but maybe those that you're concentrating on or a primary missionaries that uh, you feel a real bond with, that you put it in your budget, and it would be good that the people who go are interested in missions. Some people want a vacation, and they like to go. Have you pay for it? It should be people that shows they're interested in mission or one of the elders and, and his wife. We've done this with every single one of our missionaries. They expect it, and it is a blessing to them, and it's a blessing to us. We can come back, give a full report from our, our perspective. One of our elders, who's now with the Lord, but they took their vacation every year at their own cost, went to Japan, went to Indonesia, went to Mexico, and they mixed vacation with visiting the missionaries as an official from our church as an elder and an elder's wife. And they did this for many, many years, and boy, they have friends from all over the world as a result of doing this. They did this probably 30 years. So there's, there's creative things you can do to get out there in the field. And let me tell you, you will be blessed. You will learn a lot. Eight, plan short-term missions trips. There's probably nothing that has raised up more missionaries on the field today than missionaries who went as a, maybe a teenager, young adult, on a short-term trip, and the Lord spoke to them while they were out on the field. This has happened many, many times. God uses this. I know in 1967, I went for two months with Operation Mobilization to Austria. Well, I'd never been to Europe before. I was only young at the time. And it was really something God spoke to me about. It was just like a whole new world opened. We send every year our high schoolers, and many of them will go, sometimes 10, 15 of them will go to Central America, and I'll explain water projects. And, and these young people are all from middle-class uh, American homes. They go there and they see poverty like they've never seen. And uh, they're going to experience food, and they all get sick eventually, but they, they experience something that gives them an appreciation uh, for where they're at. It really can help young people open their eyes to world missions and give them a bigger vision. Now, in talking about short-term missions and about missionaries in general, there's a whole new world that has opened up in the world of safety and disaster planning. This is so important today. What happens if your missionary is kidnapped? What happens if your missionary has to leave the field immediately? What happens if they get very, very sick? The world is becoming, and, and everyone admits this, it's not just Christians, 
the world is becoming more and more hostile to Christians. And if you look at some of the uh, literature that's out, Open Doors, World Watch 2019, this is an incredible little magazine you should get. It reports on every country and its relationship to Christianity. We probably have seen more martyrs in the last several years than in, in many other years. Voice of the Martyrs, we'll talk about this in just a moment about praying for persecuted believers. But as a church, you need to get the, it's out there online. You can get all this information that's done for you. No one should go out anymore as a missionary or as a short term that you don't understand the plan to bring them back. So let me give you an example. In Edmond, Oklahoma, a group of young people, several vans were going to Mexico on a missions trip. One of the vans flipped over. The girl was immediately killed, several seriously hurt. What do you do? Well, who do you call? This church had a plan. They knew instantly who to call. They called one person. That one person, within hours, were getting parents on a plane, going to the, the site where they had lost their daughter. They had counselors for the, uh, for the other young people. They had a way to bring them right back. It was so well organized and planned, it was a disaster plan, that this was put in the newspaper, the local newspaper, explaining how this church had thought through, what if one of the young people dies? What if there's a terrible accident? And if you watch the news, almost every summer you'll see some accident with a missions group or a youth group. Sometimes it's a death, sometimes it's a bad accident. So, as a church, you can go online and get all this information. You don't have to rewrite the books on how do you protect yourself insurance-wise, uh, what is your plan, because you can be sued. People sue churches today, it's no big deal. If you're not responsible for anyone going out, and you need to think this through with your missions organization, your local church. Do not be careless about this or irresponsible. It's a very, very big thing today, especially in the world as it grows more and more dangerous. And every missionary is facing this uh, more hostility towards missionaries than most of us have seen in our lifetime. So get that information. If you can't get it, you call me. I will get that information for you. How to care for disaster plan, how to care for deaths or kidnappings. You need to be protected from these lawsuits and from incompetency and a lack of preparation. We trust the Lord, but the Lord also wants us to use our brains. Both are true. Nine, read missionary biographies. Now, we were talking about the Lord's command to pray for laborers for the harvest. We pray, but there's also things we can do. If we want laborers for the future, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, if the Lord doesn't return, we're going to need missionaries. We need them right now, actually. It's not people in their 40s and 50s. It's going to be children and teenagers that we've got to start reaching. Put the thoughts in their mind. So, I was a teenager. I was saved at Pine Bush Bible Camp. We had a wonderful leader. And as teenagers, 14, 15 years of age, very young teenagers, we were made to read the life of Hudson Taylor, the life of George Mueller. When you're a teenager, 
You've got all this energy. They got more energy than they know what to do with. Waste it on them, as they say. We could use that energy. And they're visionaries, and they, they're idealists, and uh, they've got plans. Well, the world's after them. The world's got visions for them. The world's got heroes for them. We have to put the heroes in their mind first. We have to set the vision out for them first. And when you're a teenager and you read the life of Hudson Taylor, I mean, you can't be the same. You cannot be the same. Now, there's a whole series, uh, several series of youth biographies of missionaries, like the Trailblazer series, but there's other series written for young people. We have to go after the children and the teenagers and start putting a vision in their mind that they are to be globalists. We have a global enter enterprise. We're internationalists. Jesus lifted our eyes out of our little local churches in our little local area to the world. We are concerned about the gospel going to every nation, every language, every people group in the world. That, that's our vision. Christ gave it to us. Didn't want us to be little people, big people. We don't have a little gospel, we have a big gospel. It's for the world. We need to put this vision in front of young people, children, and uh, teenagers. We need to go after them. This is why whenever we have a missionary back, we always send them to the Sunday school classes. We have a special meeting with all the teenagers. And during that meeting, we have them talk about what is life like in France? Uh, what is the food you eat? What are the cars you drive? What are the people like? What are the problems you have? What's the government like? In fact, every missionary that comes home should be an educational experience. So our missions committee meets twice a month. That's a little extreme for most churches, but we meet twice a month. And we try as much as we can to get missionaries in to educate us, to educate us, to teach us about different countries of the world and what we should know about them. Well, the same with your young people. They need education in what God is doing in the world. And the Lord is doing wonderful things. There's many, many problems, but the Lord is working. Challenge those young people, good biographies, good books. Put them in contact with missionaries. I think of my own children, how they've been impacted by missionaries at the table. And when we have missionaries at the table, I ask them a hundred questions. I usually exhaust the poor missionary. And I'll ask them things like, what do you eat? Or what, do you have doctors? Or where do you, what do you do for recreation? And uh, what are the people like? What's the, the government like? My kids are sitting there listening, and their whole horizons are enlarged. Their whole horizon, rather than watching television or, or those stupid YouTubes that they watch. And they are stupid. In fact, they watch them because they're stupid. That's not an exaggeration. Ten, which is very similar, have your young people meet with missionaries. I'll never forget as a teenager with our camp director at Pine Bush Bible Camp, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, maybe 17, and we met with a very famous missionary of China, Alan Crane, he's dead now, long be with the Lord, was there all the way back in the days of when it was China in mission. We sat for three hours with Alan Crane talking about China and uh, what they saw with the Lisu people and uh, many, many saved. And he was put out by the uh, communist government, and a great, great missionary. And some of the stories he has are just, I mean, they're going to make a movie out of them. And I remember at the end of our three-hour conversation with this great man of God, I said to him, Mr. Crane, what's the most important thing you learned? He said, the Lord is faithful. 
the Lord is faithful. You can trust him with your life and with, with your future. Great, great impact. Let's, let's be alive. Let's not be sleepwalkers. and Let's not be dead. Let's, let's wake up. God is working in this world, and we should know about it, and we should be involved. And that brings us to our next point, 11, which I will only be able to, let me just uh, introduce it, and then we'll stop. I'll just introduce it. This is a big point. Read world news, be informed. 11, that's our 11th point. Just this week, and I've heard this many times, a Christian brother said to me, he's a good man, said, oh, I never listen to the news. I don't want to listen to the news. It's all bad news. So I had to say to him, you know, I didn't think it was going to be good news. I mean, it's a cursed world. As a friend of mine says, the fingerprints of the curse is on everything. What are you expecting? But we're internationalists. We're globalists. Uh, we've got a great commission. Not a little commission, a great commission. We are to be interested in the nations of the world that they hear of Jesus Christ. If he has done all this work, we've got to tell people. What a terrible thing to have Christ die on the cross for our sins, bear the, fear, uh, the fierce judgment of God and, and uh, uh, bear our sin and our judgment and the curse. We don't tell anybody. We want the world to know this. But what's going on in the world, what's going on in the world affects the gospel. It affects the missionaries. It affects the progress of the gospel hinders the gospel. Incredible things are happening in the world right now. The most, the most massive migrations in human history are happening right now. Huge famines right now. These whole countries are going to run out of water. Do you care? Or there are so many good TV programs. And we have our sports well, that's selfishness, preoccupation with the self. That's what it is, preoccupation with the self. I don't think the Lord would have that. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I believe God cares about what's going on in this world. He has to watch it every day. And he created all of us in his image. Let's look at this point a little bit more because I want to give a little attention to this and then I want to talk about persecuted believers and our responsibility, biblical responsibility to pray for persecuted believers. 